Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 4, the official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. Confound it! Oh, Welly, you are without a doubt your own worst enemy. And exactly... What do you mean by that? You designed Lisa, you built her, but I don't think you realise just how creative you are. Well, this bloody collection of scrap is not making me feel particularly clever right now. With an attitude like that, why would Lisa do anything for you? Stop and nonsense. Are you saying I should act nicer to my analytical engine? No, I am saying you should act nicer to Lisa. Miss Braun. What have you got to lose at this point? Lisa, would you mind assisting me in this routine? Please? Well, I never. Never underestimate the power of manners, especially with technology. The Case of the Copper Condor by Lauren Harris Part 2 Mordecai was too fast for them. The burns on Rosalind's ankles, though initially soothed by the chill of the slush, slowed her down enough to lose the man in the unfamiliar city. Elliot, for his part, had never been an officer, and despite his relative agility and health, simply lacked the skills to follow a target so much better acquainted with the alleyways than he. So they had regrouped, drummed up a few of the local police to search Mordecai's home and the surrounding buildings, and Rosalind made her way upriver. Mordecai was important, certainly, but if the investigation was to move forward, she needed to find the actual killer. To find the killer, she needed the ferryman. The night pressed in around her, crisp and sharp as ice, and Rosalind was glad for some time alone to consider. For a long while the only sounds were the river slapping against the city's stone embankment and Rosalind's footsteps on the frosted pine needles beside. She ignored the throb of her bandaged skin the half-hour it took her to leave the city proper. The woods thickened to her right, black trunks with naked branches weaving together in shadowy lace above. Gradually the embankment gave way to earth, which still provided a steep drop to the water. It was possible the ferryman himself was the killer, but that seemed like a bit of an obvious move on Mordecai's part. More likely the ferryman was simply willing to be the go-between in a gruesome exchange of goods seeing the whole thing as little more than a smuggling operation. And that ring that Mordecai wore, there was something familiar about it, something from one of her cases in New York, but without her notes she couldn't be certain which. That was something she couldn't afford to think about just now, not when the next few hours would potentially put her at risk of meeting the killer. 
Another ten minutes of walking, and she arrived at a small dock, where a modest boat tugged against its mooring. The surface of the water here was calmer, but if Rosalind were to guess, it was still too deep to stand in at the middle. She took her bearings, guessing herself to be a league or two from the main road, which she knew crossed the river at least once before it reached the city. She couldn't be too far from that crossing now. The path split at the dock, one branch continuing on, and another more well-trodden path leading a short way into the woods, where a shack hunched beneath the black pines. Checking that her flintlock was concealed in the holster beneath her skirt, easily accessible through a false pocket, she drew in a breath and approached the door. A sliver of dim light spread from beneath it, and it trembled as she knocked. A creak followed, then a grunt and a shuffle of feet across dirt floor. Rosalind straightened her back as she heard the latch draw, and the door opened to reveal a very short man in the few centimeters of open doorway. He gazed up at her through doleful blue eyes, blinking a few times as if she might disappear. You're lost, lass, he said. That depends, she said. Are you Caron Oswald? The blue eyes blinked again, and he glanced her up and down. Are you lost if I'm not and you're looking for him? Or lost if I am and you found him? If you're him, then I'm right where I'm meant to be, she stated, drawing out her badge. My name is Agent Rosalind Kecklepenny. A spark of recognition showed in his eyes. Ah, the British mulatto girl, he said. Her teeth clenched at the term, but she waited to see what he might say. I heard something about you last week, stirring up discord with the local officers. He gave a wet-sounding laugh and pushed his door shut, sliding off a chain and opened it again. I'm Oswald, he said. What can I do for you, Miss Kecklepenny? Agent, she corrected. A flicker of amusement lit up the blue eyes as he looked at her. Agent Kecklepenny, he said and grinned. He was missing one of his canines, and as he stepped through the door, she got a better look at him. The top of his balding pate barely reached her chin, and though he might have been a stocky man once, his patched coat hung loosely on his frame like the skin of a recent stray. His hair which had looked vaguely red when backlit by his lantern, now seemed more grey than ginger. Between his accent and his diminished appearance, he reminded Rosalind of a little more than an out-of-work leprechaun. We have in our custody a man by the name of Dr. Mordecai Shrike, who indicated that you might be able to lead us to the source of the specimens he's receiving for his scientific research. Karen Oswald's blue eyes widened a bit, but he was nodding his head. Aye, Dr. Shrike. Hard lad, that one. Used to take him upriver to the mortuary in Battleton. He wanted the dead bodies for his doctoring work. The little Irishman shrugged. But then, one day he told me they won't let him have any more. And I said to him, Dr. Shrike, I know a man at the ladies' asylum, and they sometimes have girls that don't make it through the treatments. Rosalind's teeth clenched. Undoubtedly, she said. Well... Karen said. Dr. Shrike made a deal with the man, and I made a deal with Dr. Shrike. I get the stuff what he needs when it's available, and I send it downstream. Nothing illegal about my part of it. There was, but Rosalind gave her best approximation of a smile. 
Thank you for the information, Mr. Oswald. I am sorry to have disturbed you so late at night, and I beg your pardon yet again, for I must ask you to take me to this asylum. You see, we have reason to believe that some of the cadavers may not have belonged to asylum patients, but to the victims of the recent string of killings. Karen leapt back a full step and held his weathered hands out in front of him. Sweet Mary, no, he said. No, no, I don't know anything about that. What, you think Dr. Schroik has been murdering those people? He leaned forward, his tone incredulous. Nay, lass, I don't believe it. He was a hero, saved so many lives, decorated and all. Still shaken by the war, you might say. If anyone's had enough of death, it's Dr. Schroik. I will need you to take me to the asylum, she repeated. The murderer may not be Dr. Shrike at all. The ferryman swallowed, but nodded and trundled back inside for his cap and gloves. As the moon reached its acropolis in the sky, the two of them climbed down into his little boat and set off upstream. It was colder out of the water, and Rosalind found herself shivering despite her woollen skirts and jacket. The clouds of that afternoon had fully departed and the black water reflected the bright circle of moon amidst Crystal's ice stars. Karen, for all his diminutive size and gait, pushed the ferry smoothly upriver with a long pole, rather like a gondolier. He hummed as he worked, and though she would have preferred the quiet, Rosalind did not complain. She racked her brain for the names of asylums in the area. She wasn't certain that sort of establishment would have been in her reports, but now she thought of it, where else might a family put a daughter who had witnessed something peculiar? A glimmer on the river ahead caught her attention, and the darkness gradually produced the shape of a stonework bridge. They had arrived at the crossing of the main road, but that hadn't been stone that caught the light. She squinted into the darkness as they drew closer to the bridge. There was something metal under there, a set of bars, rather like the sort that supported some of the bridges in London. Only this didn't appear stable enough for that. The bars shifted very slightly with the current, and it wasn't until they were within ten meters that the moon's reflection angled into the shadows enough to illuminate a silhouette. Rosalind's hand slid into her pocket, but just as she drew a breath, she realized Karen had stopped singing. She whirled on the boat's passenger bench, lifting her flintlock, just in time for the ferryman's dripping pole to connect with her hands, sending her father's prized gun soaring out over the water. Rosalind shouted, cradling her left hand against the chest. The pole had connected with it hard, and she knew without having to run her fingers along it, that he had broken bone. Karen swung the pole a second time, but Rosalind hurled herself back, lying flat to the bow. The pole passed over her head, and she lunged upright, snatching at one of the oars at her feet. Karen stepped on it, snapping it back down, but it wasn't fast enough to jerk the pole from her reach. Rosalind grabbed the pole with her right hand and gave it a shove, sending Karen bending back precariously over the little boat's stern. Her broken hand was her downfall. With his advantage of a two-handed grip, Karen turned his body and heaved the pole into her right side. Without her left hand to grab the gunwale, Rosalind had no way to stop herself. She went over the side, crashing into the black water. It was a mark of her training that she did not let go of the pole. 
Despite the breath-stealing chill, she curled her legs in toward her body and shoved her feet hard against the side of the boat, hauling on the pole in hopes of dragging Karen in after her. The pole gave and she plunged under, but there was no satisfying splash of a diminutive ferryman joining her in the cold water. He had released the pole. Rosalind kicked, breaking through the surface of the water, just as the flat of an oar slammed next to her head. Take it, Karen said, unless you want your body to join the ones in Dr. Shoik's lab. Shuddering from bone to skin, Rosalind slapped the oar away, kicking until she could grasp the gunwale. She tried to haul herself back into the boat, but between her broken hand and her heavy, sodden skirts, it was no use. Karen used the oar to scoop his pole back toward him, and an agonizing few moments later, he pushed the boat into the shadow beneath the bridge. Rosalind's teeth chattered, and her legs were numb, but the cold was nothing to the horror of what hid beneath the bridge. The bars she had taken for a support grate were, in fact, the bars of an enormous cage, and inside that cage hung the corpse of a young woman. Stiff with death and cold, her left arm missing from the elbow. Karen fished a key from his pocket, and Rosalind watched from across the width of the boat as he opened the front of the cage, wrenched back his arm, and stabbed the key straight into the girl's eye. Rosalind would have gasped if her lungs hadn't refused to expand. Her grip was going slack, and her body had given up its attempt to stay warm by shivering. But she saw saw as Karen wiped the key on his handkerchief and reached for the pair of talons clenched into the woman's bloody shoulders. Talons exactly like that of the copper condor. The ferryman opened the talons and the body of the young woman fell, first sideways in the cage, stiff as a dress form, before Karen grasped her by the blouse and hauled her forward, sliding her body into the river. It sank out of sight behind the boat, and Rosalind did not have the strength to turn her head to watch it reappear, though she knew it would, and it would float downstream, catch on branches and turn in the stronger currents, taking on water until it eventually caught and held in another bridge's grating, to be fished out by New Brighton's brilliantly incompetent police force. She could imagine it, and a part of her heart reached out to the girl, because she knew as Karen leaned over, grabbing her under the arms, that she was imagining her own fate. Karen moved her awkwardly, as if she were a stiff and drunken dance partner, and shoved her into the cage. Rosalind fought back, or told herself to, but her body refused to respond. The cold seemed to have leached into her very brain. The ferryman reached above his head, drawing the talons down to her shoulders. He gave her a smile and a wink, humming again. He pulled a pair of levers, and the pair of talons sank into the flesh of her shoulders. Rosalind jerked, desperate to scream, but all that came out was a choked moan. The chill did not eliminate the pain of those talons in her shoulder, and she found her legs twitching in the trap of sodden skirts 
as Charon closed the front of the cage, locked it, and reached for a chain. The water was up to her knees, but when Charon let out the chain, the cage sank, drawing the water up to just the edge of her corset. She gasped, coughed at the renewed chill. Karen crouched in his boat, now looking down at her. You see, Agent Kecklepenny, he said, it's not just the pats that matter. It's how they die. The method is very scientific. Has to be freezing or the pats will be useless. He stood up, fitting full height under the bridge. I'd best be off for now, but I'll be back, don't you worry. I suppose he'll be needing another arm. The ferryman spilled the knot securing the boat to the bridge, and the current bore his boat downstream toward New Brighton. Before he disappeared around a bend, Rosalind swore she heard him whistling. Her thoughts were growing disjointed, wild things occurring to her. She thought at one point that it would be easy to break the metal bars, but could not lift her arms to attempt it. She saw her sister swimming toward her, pulling herself up on the cage to pick the lock with her earring, though Adelaide could no more pick locks than she could clean father's flintlock. Then the condor appeared, gliding down to the cage with great agility, perching atop it with its talons screeching against the metal. It cocked its head at her, oculos shortening and twisting focus, then let out a short trill of steam. It slid its beak through the bars, and she felt the scalding heat of the copper against her collarbone as it grasped her locket and pulled. The chain snapped at the back of her neck, slithered out of the metal loop, and disappeared into the river like a slim golden eel. As the condor hopped to one of the metal supports extending from the bridge, Rosalind felt her eyelids tugging down, exhaustion beckoning. The condor launched itself from the support into the air, carrying her locket as a sudden wave of heat called Rosalind down into darkness. Rosalind hadn't really had time to form an expectation of whether she should wake again or not. But if she had, it would not have been in the scope of her imagination to think she would awaken atop the cold stone of the bridge, her shoulders and hand bandaged with strips of her own petticoats, and Dr. Mordecai Shrike leaning over her. His expression was calm, though there was a slight tremor to the fingers probing at the injury to the side of her head. The touch might have stung, but it wasn't the pain that bothered Rosalind. It was the heat. She looked down, the backs of her eyes aching as she moved them, and found that she had been buttoned up in Mordecai's large woolen coat, the sleeves tied over her chest like crossed arms. It was like being baked in an oven. Despite the snow still glittering on the branches above them, Rosalind wasn't certain she had ever felt so hot, even on assignment to Egypt. She shifted, hoping the sleeves would come untied, and allow some cool air into the collar. Do not try to move, Mordecai said. His grip tightened on her face, and he continued his appraisal of the blow to her head. I'm... resting alive, she managed to mumble. Mordecai nodded, still not meeting her eyes, as he worked both hands over her skull and down the back of her neck. You may think you're burning up, but in actuality you're about to die from hypothermia. 
His eyes finally flicked down, meeting hers. That's how it works. First you fight the cold, you shiver and struggle, and then your body stops shivering, attempts to conserve energy. When your body tires, your limbs can feel warm when they are not. Some shed the very warmth that might save their lives. I saw it happen more than once on the battlefield. I have taken precautions to ensure you can't escape from the coat. It isn't much, particularly given your wet clothing, but it may be enough to keep you alive. Do not let anyone remove it until you have something warm to change into. He pushed himself up into a crouch, rubbing his bare hands together, and Rosalind noted that he was shivering, and his shirt sleeves and the shanks of his trousers were damp. Of course, without a boat he would have had to climb at least partially into the water to pull her from the cage. The cage, she murmured. That was your work, wasn't it? It was hard to breathe, and she was having trouble focusing her gaze on the sharp angles of his face. Mordecai pressed his lips together. Not my work, he said. But they were my parts, yes. Parts I traded in exchange for passage. I had no idea he would put them to such use. But those were parts that didn't work, experiments that failed. The stars behind Mordecai's head had started to spin, as if she were lying on a great rotating platter. The reports of the girls, Rosalind said, closing her eyes to block out the dizzying sight. Their wounds. I do not at least suspect... A violent shudder cut her off mid-sentence. Mordecai's hand was on her upper arm, and she heard him mutter an oath in German. He dragged her from the bridge and into the woods beside the road, settling her in the forked roots of a large oak. She watched, dazed and sweating, as he gathered the wood for a small fire and set it going. Why, why did... Each word was a struggle to produce. But Mordecai seemed to know what she was asking. Why did I help you? She nodded. He looked away from her then, focusing on something behind her, which she could not see. She heard it, though. The sound of those mechanical wings. The trill of vented steam. Mordecai went to the copper condor, and after a few moments during which Rosalind passed her gaze over the river and the bridge before her, he returned a steaming flask in hand, and crouched beside her. I followed you, he confessed, holding the flask to her lips. Or had you followed more accurately? Drink. It isn't tea, but it will raise your core temperature. She considered refusing the drink, but the instant the sweetness hit her tongue, she knew what it was. Sugar water, heated in the condor's boiler stomach. Mordecai went on. Once I saw what he did to acquire the cadavers, I realized I couldn't let him kill you. On some level, I feel I should have known. The likelihood of that many deaths by freezing for that many women of the correct age in such a centralized location... He shook his head. The will is a strong force. Particularly when it comes to willing oneself into ignorance. You also want me to... Reveal the real killer, Rosalind said. Absolve you of the murders. Mordecai smiled humorlessly. That would be ideal, but I do not pretend to believe saving you will earn me a full pardon. 
You must believe me when I say that I am doing a good thing, but a thing which you cannot possibly understand. Unfortunately, Agent Kecklepenny, I am on a schedule. I cannot simply allow the law to stop my research just yet. Not until I brought goodness back into the world. Rosalind wondered if she were hallucinating again, dreaming those strange words that made so little sense. You could do so much good, she said. Why not offer your services to the Ministry? We could use your skills in the research department. You could be paid, given the capability of working above the law. Mordecai stood, towering over her as he brushed his bare hands down his trousers. I'm afraid that is not an option at the moment, Agent Kecklepenny. As I said, you would not understand. But this, I believe, must be returned to you. He reached into his waistcoat and bent back into her line of sight placing something where the knotted sleeves of his jacket cradled it against her chest. Then he stood again. I helped you, Agent Kecklepenny, not only to help myself, but because you remind me of the goodness I wish to reunite with the world. It would have pleased me to meet under different circumstances. With that, he turned his back to her and walked toward the city. She listened to his footsteps even after he faded out of sight, until the snow-muffled woods and the crackling of the fire snuffed them out. She glanced down and found, cradled between the knotted sleeves and her chest, her golden locket. The condor, at least, had not been a hallucination. By the time Rosalind felt she could move again, the moon had disappeared behind the trees, and the fire Dr. Mordecai Shrike had laid for her had been reduced to embers. Shivering, she stood, dropped free her sodden outer dress and petticoats, and wrapped up in the dark wool of the mad scientist's coat. He had bound her broken hand to her torso, which made doing up the buttons a chore, but his care, though unexpected, had done the work it needed. In true battlefield medic fashion, he had done the bare minimum to keep her alive and moved on. She walked for a mile, her fingers and toes numb, but her core regaining heat as she turned over the events in her mind. She would have to apprehend Karen. Eventually, she would have to catch Mordecai as well. Damn him! The surgeon had made it far more difficult on himself than she would have liked, considering he had just saved her life. She'd always had a great confidence in her judge of character, and perhaps it was the hubris of that very pride which had led to her own near downfall. But she was no Jason, no Bellerophon, to try to match the gods. Luckily, all she had to do was catch a few mortals. Elliot and the two police officers met her on the road, and the tinkerer's taut expression collapsed in relief. Roz, thank the Lord, we feared the— No time for fear just yet, Mr. Stokero, she said, glad to hear his voice did not tremble with cold. I know who the murderer is, and if I am not very much mistaken, he will be leaving town shortly. We could not find Shrike, Elliot said. No, I noticed that, Rosalind said. She indicated the coat she was wearing and watched Elliot's eyes leave her face for the first time, tracking across the oversized garment. Luckily, he found me, or I would be able to tell you nothing. She beckoned them after her and recounted her fight with the ferryman, 
and subsequent rescue by Dr. Shrike. Elliot shook his head when she recounted losing her gun in the water, and for the first time she felt the loss of it. Her father's flintlock lost forever. Her heart sank, as if the locket tucked in her corset now weighed several stones. Her shoulders were in agony, her hand throbbed, and all energy seemed to drain from her bones. Rosalind gritted her teeth, conjuring up a mental picture of Karen Oswald's doleful blue eyes. He would pay for the lives he stole, and if she was harsher than she generally would have been, well, he had tried to kill her, and the bastard had lost her gun. Elliot argued with her, but in the end agreed to follow her along the river to the ferryman's house. The officers split off, keen to head back to town and try their hand at catching Mordecai. The dim, dirty light still glowed inside the ferryman's house as she and Elliot crept up the path. She heard the hair-raising sound of him whistling behind the doorway. They crouched on either side, listening for the man's location. At the back, near the fireplace, Rosalind whispered. Is he armed? Elliot asked. Not that I saw. The tinker nodded, pulling his gleaming shotgun from his back and winding a mechanism on the side. A soft blue glow started up at the back of the weapon. He will not be whistling too much longer. With that, the two of them stood, and, on Rosalind's cue, Elliot kicked in the door. <laughs> Rosalind followed her partner into the room, where Karen stood in an attitude of disbelief bordering on a fence. Until his gaze fell on Rosalind, he went pale, then green, his eyes flicking back and forth between her face and the muzzle of Elliot's glowing gun, which was pointed straight at his head. Evening, neighbor, she said in her best American accent. Can we borrow a cup of sugar? It wasn't a long fight. In fact, it wasn't a fight at all. Karen went with them quietly, and Rosalind didn't bother to see him put behind bars. She went to the surgery, got herself patched up, and went to Mordecai's house. The door was locked, the shutters drawn, and even the upstairs windows were pulled shut against the light of the rising sun. There was no glint of copper wings in the sky. She picked the lock, entering the avian mausoleum with a prickle. Workbenches and vats turned up little she had not anticipated, and though the enormous cage still prickled her hair on her nape, she could find no way to trigger any sort of mechanism no trace of the blood or excrement she would have expected from a torture chamber. It wasn't until she strode through the door on the far wall, the one Mordecai had glanced at no few times during their interrogation, that she found anything worth looking at. Stairs leading to a basement level and a loose flagstone, freshly turned dirt that moved easily aside. She held her breath, expecting the stench of putrefying flesh, but her fingers met a flat stretch of wood, too fine to be a coffin for a girl buried in the madman's basement. No, this was etched and inlaid, like a sea chest or a jewelry box. More than that, it was... ticking. The box was ticking, but not in the way she would have expected from a carriage clock or even a timed explosive. No, this had a very familiar cadence. 
one that Rosalind was beginning to hear now in her own ears. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. It beat the very rhythm of her own heart. She bent closer. The flagstones digging into her knees as she brushed dirt away from the box enough to examine the seal. A raven, open-winged above a scroll that read only Usher. The bird's beak pointed toward a very complicated-looking locking mechanism, which she was certain Elliot would take care of in a blink. But who, or what, was Usher? Had they provided the box? Perhaps they were funding Shrike, and he simply utilized their strong box to protect his own work. She had a feeling she knew what was in the box, and if her suspicion proved correct, it would explain his protectiveness. After all, creating a clockwork heart was no small feat. Rosalind hefted the box, hardly caring that the dirt further streaked her ruined dress. Shivering, she returned to the jail where Elliot, though distracted mightily by the box's lock, refused to allow her leave before he'd fed her tea an entire tin of biscuits. Generally, Rosalind wouldn't allow herself to be bossed around by a man of junior rank, but she was too exhausted, and he was too handsome to argue with. Still, she would rest better if she had seen this case through to the end, or at least to as much of an end as she could bring it. The men she'd sent to the riverside recovered Karen's previous victim, the woman whose body she had seen slide into the river. Wiping crumbs from her skirts, Rosalind tugged on her soiled gloves and preceded Elliot from the station. They walked through the morning together, dawn cool and crisp as a chip of ice. In the frosted mud, their boots left damp tracks that caved in and disappeared behind them, as if they were ghosts, retracing their steps to the very spot Rosalind had first encountered Mordecai Shrike. The shrouded form of the other girl drew her. She reached for the shroud, and sudden dizziness nearly overbalanced her. But Rosalind caught herself before Elliot rushed, gallant and insubordinate, to her aid. A turn of the cloth revealed the dead woman's mangled eye and blue-washed features. There was one marked difference to the last time Rosalind had seen the woman. Where before she had been missing only one arm, now she was missing two. Anger burned down Rosalind's spine. Shrike, she whispered then clenched her fingers in the shroud and tossed it over the girl again. That's the same girl, she confirmed, accepting Elliot's hand up. There was something else, Agent Cucklepenny, Major Toggleburn said. When we pulled the net from the water, this was caught in it. Rosalind stared for a long moment, concealing the simultaneous surges of disbelief and joy as Major Toggleburn extended the gold and ebony handle of a fine flintlock gun. The initials J.P.K. stood out, embossed on one side. Jean-Philippe Kicklepenny. She took the pistol. The weight of it returning to her hand cooled her anger somewhat. Thank you, Major, she said. The man, now drying his hands on a handkerchief, or was he surreptitiously wiping them clean, motioned his men to bear the body away. Rosalind stowed the gun in the over-large pocket of the coat, which she hugged against her in the chill. She longed for a bath and fresh clothing, 
a real meal, and at least two fingers of sherry. But her mind strayed back to the box in the police station, and the mad scientist still at large. She sighed, and Elliot lifted his eyebrows at her, and extended an elbow. She took it, let him turn her away from the river. Why do I get the sense you're not happy with the way this investigation ended? Elliot said. Ended? Rosalind looked up at him, genuinely started. But it hasn't ended. You caught the murderer, found out what happened to the bodies after. The local authorities will take care of Dr. Shrike. His eyes warmed. Though I would very much like to take that bird back to New York, get it in my shop. Rosalind sighed, allowing Elliot's elbow to take a little bit more of her weight as she navigated the frozen edge of the puddle. I don't like this many loose ends. It feels like treating the symptoms, not the cause. I would say the cause of a murder is a murderer, Elliot said, his handsome face splitting into a grin. I would say you treated him about right. She smiled wanly and motioned him close. She glanced around to ensure they were alone before speaking frankly with her partner. Dr. Shrike was here, she said. The girl was missing one arm when I saw her in Oswald's cage. Now she's missing two. Elliot's eyes widened. The murders may be done with, but I know for a fact Dr. Shrike isn't finished. I'm not convinced he's utterly villainous, she said, her hand covering the place where her locket rested the neat coat and corset. I'm also not convinced he's entirely good, or that his research is safe to continue. I offered him a chance to join the ministry, but— You, you what? Elliot's hand dropped from her back, and Rosalind looked up just in time to see the flash of hurt in her partner's eye. She immediately regretted having told him that particular detail. Oh, Elliot, she said, placing a conciliatory hand on his upper arm. You are needed here, in the American Ministry. They will need talented Clankertons. I only suggested Dr. Shrike join our ministry because, as it stands, we are currently better equipped to handle any fallout should his research go horribly astray. You see, he isn't creating automatons, exactly. Some of the tension in Elliot's face relaxed, and he seemed to be about to speak when a familiar, whistling cry echoed in the brightening sky overhead. Rosalind glanced up, caught the glint of a copper wing as it disappeared into amber clouds. He's created artificial life. is the author of the Mill Road Academy Exorcists novella series and assistant editor of Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. She is the co-creator of 2012's Parsec finalist Pendragon Variety, a genre writing podcast, which is now a network of associated writing podcasts and blogs, the Pendragon Variety Network. Her narration is available on Audible and various short fiction podcasts. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. 
For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order The Diamond Conspiracy. Now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print, digital, and audio. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales in the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank Thank you you for for listening. listening.